Okay, so hello and welcome to this new series of podcasts being produced by Harper James Solicitors. Today and over future episodes, we will be aiming to provide help on how to make your company, enterprise or business idea be as successful as possible. We'll be providing advice. We'll have industry leading experts on hand to provide tips and guidance for running the business. And we'll be talking to many different entrepreneurs themselves about their own individual stories and trying to find out the secrets behind their success. With that in mind, I'm very pleased today to be joined by someone whose success isn't just evident through the way she has grown her business. No, Leah Totten also proved to millions of TV viewers that she had what it takes to go all the way in business by winning the BBC series The Apprentice and becoming the business partner of billionaire Lord Alan Sugar. There's a lot of discussion about businesses that may not survive the pandemic and I think that's a very real risk for a lot of companies but even of the businesses that are likely to survive and continue to trade which hopefully will be ours you're going to see us trade in a much more conservative way and expand in a much more conservative way than than what we had forecast um, so yeah I, I think the the effects are are devastating really to small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, I just can't think of anything worse than than trying to lead a country through this with Brexit in the background. It's just completely unprecedented. I know we, we use we use that word a lot at the minute, but it really, really is. And you know, any any leader who's trying to navigate through this honestly has my sympathy because I can't think of anything more challenging. It's hard enough to navigate a small business through this, let alone an entire country. Now, since triumphing in the programme, she's set up a chain of her own clinics, which provide a range of cosmetic services, and she's become a campaigning voice on the need for better regulation within the industry that she works. That's an issue I'm particularly looking forward to discussing with her later on. But Leah, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Now, obviously, I want to turn to The Apprentice um, at due course. But I'd like to start really by talking about the issue that's obviously dominating everyone's lives, not just for, you know in a personal sense, but a business sense as well, uh, the pandemic. Now we're in the second national lockdown at the moment, which has obviously forced you to have to close many of your clinics. With that in mind, can you just reflect on the challenge of the past 11 months and what position your business is in right now? I think like most service-based business owners with bricks and mortar businesses. It's been a really difficult year. Um, I don't think any of us could have foreseen this coming. And for us as a business, it's affected not only um, our existing business, but certainly, and I actually think more dramatically, our plans for the future. So we had we have as a brand three sites at the minute, three cosmetic clinics, one yeah. in Essex, two in London. And we had planned, I mean, planned to the point of almost completing on the lease for a fourth clinic that was due to open this year in Canary Wharf and um, a skin care line, a Dr. Leah skin care line, um, which, which has also taken a lot of investment and neither of those now are, are likely to come to fruition. Um, and that is a, that has been a really challenging thing so I think in terms of running our existing business like everyone you just have to do what you have to do to get through um but I think 
the more significant thing is how it's going to change how businesses grow and expand in the future and what that means for you know the economy as a whole because i think what you're going to see is there's a lot of discussion about businesses that may not survive the pandemic and i think that's a very real risk for a lot of companies but even of the businesses that are likely to survive and continue to trade which hopefully will be ours you're going to see us trade in a much more conservative way and expand in a much more conservative way than than what we had forecast um so yeah i, I think the the effects are are devastating really to small and medium-sized businesses can i just ask obviously the, the pandemic has become such a common part of our world now but it, it wasn't always like that and when you look back to the start of the year it kind of come out of nowhere really at what point did you realise as a business that you could be really badly affected and, and how did you react to that? I think for me, I initially was more concerned with it. I'm obviously a doctor by background. All of my friends are medics. My family are medics. I was very much, um, I don't know if pre- preoccupied is the right word, but consumed yeah. um, with the the health impact and certainly that occupied the majority of my my thoughts for for all of march april um and into may i think it was probably only when we re- truthfully when we reopened in july that i fully understood the impact that this was going to have on business i also now naively i can see believe that we'd return to normal for some reason i believe that we'd have this brief closure three months most businesses can withstand the three-month closure um, and have enough cash flow to do that. And then we would open and, and trade as normal. I I did not foresee in any, under any circumstance that we'd be going in and out of national lockdowns. I didn't think we'd be trading to a lesser capacity or with COVID measures in place. So, I mean, a bit of naivety on my part there, but it was July um, before I realised just quite how significant this was going to be for the business. You, you mentioned cash flow there. Um, as one of the challenges. What what have been the other challenges over the last year um, to cope with the pandemic? I think cash flow is a big one. I mean, we've got quite quite large static overheads and that we have quite big sites in central London, which are in um, prime locations, one in the heart of the city, one in the heart of Marlebone. And I think that's the case for a lot of, of businesses, certainly in London. Furlough scheme is helpful um, because it helps your obviously your wage situation, but there is no there is no real there's no real emphasis or, or pressure on commercial landlords to grant any sort of rent alliance for that period of closure. I know legally until December now they can't demand that you pay the rent, but there's no pressure whatsoever. There's no law or or regulation that means that they do have to discount for that period of closure and and rent remains my largest overhead. Have you had to lose any staff during this period? Unfortunately, we have. um, Not very many. We are fortunate enough um, that actually some willingly dropped down to part-time hours um which which helped a lot but the 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 other thing which i which i'm seeing now more and more is the psychological implications for my staff and the returning workforce and the amount of anxiety um that there is amongst the returning workforce having had four months at home um going through a whole range of emotions, a whole range of stressors, and then being thrust back into a completely alien work environment where they're working in full PPE, they're working to different regulations, patient space in disinfecting rooms after each client. 
And I think the psychological burden um, of that was a lot as well. And the psychology, I think, you know, even as my as someone I am still hands on the business, I still treat the psychology um, of going from being working every single day to not working at all, not not seeing patients, clients daily for such a long period of time and then being expected to immediately go back into that, I think was really challenging for lots of, of my staff and and they preferred on returning to work to work lower hours. Um, and that's, I think that's been a really interesting shift. That wasn't what I was expecting. Um, I was expecting people to go back in, haven't had the time off and, and want to work more. Um, but not everyone responds in that way. And, and quite a large percentage of my staff actually now prefer to work two, three days a week rather than a five day week. And it's, it's, you know, it's really allowed people to reflect on what it is they want from their life and how much they value um, having that time at home. Now, obviously, as an employer, that's challenging, but equally, as a human, yeah. I absolutely understand it. Um, so, yeah, that's been a that's been a challenge as well. So have you also managed to benefit from the furlough scheme in the sense of being able to support the business in that way? We have furloughed our staff. We didn't for I didn't furlough myself. Um, and although I am working in the business now, that isn't because I couldn't have. But I just think, you know, when you open a business, and I don't judge business owners who work in a business who have furloughed themselves at all, because everyone's in a different situation. But from my point, my personal take on it is, if you have started a business and things had went in a different way for me, say, you know, Brexit hadn't happened, things hadn't been going through the roof economically in the past 18 months, and then we hadn't had a global pandemic, you know, that you take a risk when you open a business, in my opinion, and it, it so happens as a shareholder in this business, we haven't had such a good year. Um, but I think that's, that's something that I have to accept. So I didn't furlough myself, but I did furlough our other members of staff eventually. We paid initially, and then when our cash flow dried up, we had no choice but to furlough them. And how many staff have you got, Leo, in all? We have 16 at the minute. So of those, some were furloughed and some have now gone to part-time hours, have they? Yeah, on, on their own preference, which has been, um, which has been interesting. I mean, we'll come back to the way that your business is set up later on, um, but, but just touching on some of the struggles there, has there been any point in which you've just been tempted just to jack it all in? No, no. Um, but we had, every business came into this in a different um, yeah. standpoint. So this is not, our business is seven or eight years old. I'm not at the point of, you know, apathy and fatigue that business owners sometimes get 15, 20 years down the line. So my, we were a growing business prior to this, coming, you know, with, with aims of quite aggressive expansion, which should have been happening now. So you know, I, I didn't feel any sense of, oh, forget this, this is too much work or this is too much stress. Um, and I feel incredibly passionate about what we do. I mean, this business is is something that I I would do even if it wasn't for, you know, for the financial reward. So, no, I didn't feel that. But I can definitely understand if businesses were struggling before this, how absolutely challenging to the point of, of inconceivable um, this would be because as a business that was was doing very very well prior to this I can see how difficult this has been even for us um, so I can only imagine what it's like for businesses who who were potentially going through a hard time even before this and some businesses where I mean one of my clinics in the city I mentioned Brexit briefly yeah. um, 
but you know already we were seeing a downturn you know in the economy off of your corporate areas um with a lot of firms relocating outside of london even prior to this and you mentioned the mental health side of things not just for your staff but for yourself i'd like to come back to that because i don't think it's an issue that's been talked about that much but how have you stayed sane and motivated during the last few months what have you done as a as an individual to help that process I worked um, from home quite a lot, so doing online consultations. I did them myself. My staff were furloughed, but I worked remotely throughout the entire last lockdown. Um, and I and I run. I do quite a lot of running, so that's quite helpful, I think. But it's the mindset of someone who owns a business is a different mindset often to people who are employed within a business in that it's so I will be able to find work to do for that business, whether the business is open or closed. It's my whole life. It's my creation. It's a different thing. And I think and I, so equally, I think the challenge of going back into the workplace wasn't such a jump for business for a lot of business owners. It's a bit different if you're I know this woman spoke to a lot of my employees. Some of them are young girls they are in their early 20s. They've never experienced anything like the you know the uncertainty or the fear and I think this time around the other thing I would add to that is obviously also as a doctor having a a slightly more more insight into the health side of things is also helpful in diminishing anxiety but I think if you're looking at this as someone who's in your early 20s you're working you know front of house you haven't experienced anything like this and and you've no real experience of working in a healthcare environment or, or coping with viruses or, or pandemics. I, I think it's just, uh, it's it's incomprehensible the amount of of, of turmoil um, that that can cause. And then being at home for four months, then you're back in, you're in a completely different work environment. You're de-skilled because you haven't been working at all for those four months. Um, it's it's been really challenging, and you know I really sympathise with with workers who've who've been through that. And for some people, there was there wasn't even that op- opportunity to come back. You know, for businesses that didn't reopen, which is arguably worse. So it hasn't been good for anyone. It really hasn't, and I don't think anyone um, will look back in two thousand and twenty favourably. You mentioned some of your younger staff there that you've been supporting. I'd like just to go back to to your um, younger years and and your background, if if I may. Um, You you studied medicine at university. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us the qualifications that you gained and what were your aspirations when you were at university for for the future when you were studying? What did you want to do? Yeah, so I'm a normal medical doctor. I qualified with a distinction in my medical degree and then worked just as a normal F1, F2 foundation year trainee doctor in London. Um, and then did the apprentice after my F2 year. I then actually, while I was while I was working still in the business, went back, went part-time in the business with the um, consent and agreement of my business partner and went back to the NHS and did another two years NHS alongside the business. Um, I've My vocation is, is medicine. It is to help people. And even now, I remain in a treating role in the company, which, to be honest, probably I don't really need to do. Um, but I, that's the aspect of it that I enjoy most. It's the patient contact. It's, it's being hands-on and being able to help people, um, people's quality of life. So that's my background. I've done a um, diploma in dermatology as well um, throughout because dermatology obviously is what we do. Um, 
But yeah, so that is my educational background. So w- when you were at university, did you see yourself as, as ever running your own business or was that something that, you know, wasn't really in the pipeline for you? Um, I saw myself going into a managerial role. I actually thought I would go into healthcare um, management and that is something I, I may well do in the future. Um, so that sort of, that side of things, um, not so much the cosmetic side of things. I think the cosmetic side of things came out of an incident um, and an opportunity rather than something that I had ever thought from a young age, I'm going to be a, you know, a Botox doctor. Um, But I definitely knew I was going to be a doctor. And I thought that I, I thought I would go into some sort of leadership or managerial role. I did think that would be within the NHS. Um, But as it happens, um, I set up a business outside of that. And how did you go about that plan? So when you were leaving university, we'll come on to The Apprentice, of course, but when you were leaving university um, and making that next step, did did you have a clear plan of where you wanted to go and how you were going to do it? Yeah, I... I think I was all, I was always interested in things like finance. So in my third year of university, I did a, a night course um, in finance. So I did always have an interest in, I don't think I would naturally call myself, entre- I don't know if I'm a natural entrepreneur. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to go and start a tech business or make, you know, create some or, or be on a market stand selling something but I I definitely have always had an interest in leadership and in optimizing outcomes um, and in understanding the fundamentals of how healthcare is provided healthcare provision finance is a big part of that um, so I that was my sort of interest so, yeah, I think probably at university, I did know that I wasn't going to just do straight clinical medicine, probably, if I'm if I'm really thinking about it. Um, when I qualified then as an F1 doctor, I went on and I, it was in my F2 year that I became interested in aesthetics. And that was because my aunt had had an int- had a um, had an incident in Northern Ireland where she um, unfortunately had a procedure that was botched essentially by someone who wasn't medically qualified when we looked at the legal implications of that there were none um, the person was uninsured um, and there, there was no legal ramifications it's perfectly legal in this country and in, in all of the UK um, to buy dermal filler online and to inject it without any ramifications so that's what sparked my interest in that sector and I saw an opportunity um, probably my only moment of entrepreneurial flair ever, um, where I could create and medicalize a sector. So do some good um, in bringing regulation and a medical influence to a sector that, that I think really needed it. And I think we've been successful in doing that. Absolutely. And I'd like to come on to that. Just with regard to your aunt, how old was your aunt at the time of that incident? She wasn't young. She, If I would have been 22, she would have been... 20 years old in the early 40s at that time. So what what, what happened to her? She had dermal filler. Um, it's all a bit grey. And you've got to bear in mind that this was what, 10 years ago in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland, even now, is probably not the availability of, of medical um, medical aesthetics isn't what it is in your your London, your sort of big cities. But it, although it is improving, she was going through a very difficult time in her personal life. 
Um, and like like many women, um, often a trigger to undergo cosmetic enhancement is, or is to boost your self-esteem because you're going through a challenge in time, which is why, again, I think this pandemic um, you know, brings again to the forefront the importance of medicalization of the non-surgical cosmetic space because we are seeing an influx in people who are seeking cosmetic procedures. And I'm absolutely confident that that is linked um, to the to how the people are not feeling great about the you know their external their external situation at the minute. But irrespective, she's going through a challenging time. Wanted to feel better about herself. Went with a friend and had some dermal filler performed for Marion outlines, which are just these lines at the side of your mouth. Should have been a straightforward procedure. Was done in a tannin, sort of beautician tannin type salon. Um, but again, 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of education at that time about what was or wasn't, um, should or shouldn't be happening. Um, it got, I think, badly infected or it was a vascular occlusion. I don't know when I wasn't trained at the time, but either way, it, it went quite wrong in the end. In the end up, she had to seek treatment via GP because the person just turned off her phone, didn't want to know. It was someone who was coming in to treat and then leaving, sort of, you know, just traveling around different places like satellite injector non non-insured non-medic um and yeah she she's nice still even now she's a slight i mean it's not terrible but you can see that it is a scar um and that was obviously at that time when she wasn't feeling great anyway really quite quite a devastating ordeal and i think unfortunately the people that you know do fall victim to that sort of thing are people who are more vulnerable at that time um, and are seeking a quick fix to feel better about themselves. Um, so that sparked my interest in the sector. I was aghast that that was allowed to happen and that it was actually fairly commonplace and there was no legal ramifications of that. Um, you don't need to be a doctor. You don't even need to be in any way medically qualified to administer these treatments. Um, and you can essentially disform um, someone without there being any legal recourse because they essentially give consent to a lay person injecting them. Um, so that sparked my interest. And I thought, actually, when I looked at it, there was a lot of very expensive, you can go to Harley Street, have a plastic surgeon, inject dermal filler for you know, £900 for a syringe, or you can go to your sort of back street injectors. There wasn't really very many providers in that middle section who offered medical injectors, but at reasonable sort of high street locations and prices, which is, is what our business plan was and is. It's a really extreme example, but it's a great example of how business opportunities can arrive. And, uh, you know, the fact that something personal happened to you, you saw an opportunity there to make a difference and improve things. Um, I imagine your aunt must be very proud of you for what you've achieved. Does she, does she talk to you about it much? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think she never said to me once. Um, no, I don't think she The Northern Ireland families are a bit different to English sure. families. But talking about, obviously, uh, pride, I, I would like to move on to The Apprentice. Um, it's many years since you're on the show, although, that said, um, you have been back on TV recently because of the series that's been shown again, mm -hmm. the, the best bits, because... Sadly, they've not been able to film a series this year due to the pandemic. Um, so you talked about being at university. You talked about the fact you went on a night course to train in financial management. When, Where did the applying for The Apprentice come into this plan? Was it a spur of the moment thing? Why did you apply? I think after what happened with my aunt, I at that point did, a quali did qualifications in Botox and dermal filler. 
They're yeah. slightly better training now, but at that time the training was abysmal. Um, it was self-funded. It was one and two day courses. And to be honest, you have to do, I had to do so many of them to feel in any way confident. <clears throat> Excuse me, to inject. I am quite a perfectionist by nature. And if I'm going to do something, I will need to do it the absolute best that I possibly can. So I invested in a mentorship with a guy who was a plastic surgeon. Um, who And I went every Sunday to him for six months and did a, a period of shadowing. He did a clinic in Harley Street. I paid an absolute fortune for the mentorship, but it was worth it. Um, and then when I got to the end of that, I realized, okay, so now I feel confident to inject. I... I, I'm understanding the sector better because I think you need to shadow within the sector to understand essentially the feelings of it, much like the NHS. And I think um, like any business to to really understand how, or any sector to really understand how you can improve it, you've got to be in it. Um, so I did that. And at the end of that, I thought, okay, I now feel that I'm able to offer these treatments in a safe way, but I think there needs to be a light shone on the feelings of this industry to educate people about why they need to come to a doctor or a nurse prescriber, a medically qualified person to have this done. And, and I also had no money at that point to start a business. Um, so I needed the investment and I needed the the spotlight of the apprentice. Yeah, so you, you said a moment ago, you know, you couldn't, you're not the kind of person you could see yourself on a tech stand or, you know, marketing and that, whereas, Going on that show, you're putting yourself, you know, in front of millions of people. So were you nervous applying and did it did it fill out of your comfort zone? I, I was really, no, oddly, I don't really get nervous. I don't know why that is. I just don't. Um, I think it's from having done medicine. I did a lot of A&E medicine. When I went back, I did even more A&E, quite acute stuff. Yeah. I, most doctors don't really get nervous that much. Um, not about things things like pitching or, or anything like that, because you just always have in the back of your mind, this isn't life or death. No one's going to die if I don't win this show. I might look like an idiot on national TV, but that's life. So I, I don't know. I don't think I wasn't nervous doing it, but I never thought I was going to win. Um, but what I did think it would allow me to do is talk more about the aesthetic industry and to say, listen, guys, this is what's going on out there. This is, you know, you can't be going to to backstreet cowboys and having things done because the the ramifications of that are actually a lot more significant than than what people realized at that time. Botox at that point, I mean, there was quite a there was a bit of backlash in the press when I won that show, even at that time. Although yeah. it was only 10 years ago, it was still quite a taboo thing. It wasn't talked about. You know, Botox is very much like, oh my God, Alan Sugar's injected in Botox, you know, in, invested in Botox. <clears throat> so it was, it was, it was, there was still stigma around these procedures. And I wanted to break that down, allow it to be more talked about in the hope that it would educate women, because it mainly is women who undergo these procedures, um, into making better choices. I needed a lot of support in that first year. I had him tortured. Alan Sugar is obsessed with bottom line, with margin. He really, really, at his core, he there's a lot of you know jazz around business and the PR element and all of this. But what really the fundamentals of business are turnover, costs, and bottom line. And he is really unfazed. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. He just has the thickest skin I've ever seen. 
you need to pull yourself together. Um, stop being, you know, do not be this emotional about it. This is just business. 